You may recall, my dear listener, that this week on the Bible Tract Echoes radio broadcast, we've been discovering together a story that might be new to many of you. In reality, it's a retelling of the prodigal son's story. It's called A Burglar's Christmas. I'd like to ask you to tune your mind and warm up your imagination as we are reintroduced to a young man, all of 24, standing with cold feet and bitter soul on the streets of Chicago on Christmas Eve, 1896. A carriage drove up to the house before which he stood. Several richly dressed women alighted and went in. It was a new house and must have been built since he was in Chicago last. The front door was open, and he could see down the hallway and up the staircase. The servant had left the door and gone with the guests. The first floor was brilliantly lit, but the windows upstairs were dark. It looked so very easy. Just to slip upstairs to the darkened chambers where the jewels and trinkets of the fashionable occupants were kept, still burning with impatience against himself, he entered quickly. Instinctively, he removed his mud-stained hat as he passed quickly and quietly up the staircase. It struck him as a rather superfluous courtesy in a burglar, but he had done it before he had even thought. His way was clear enough. He met no one on the stairway or in the upper hall. The gas was lit in the upper hall. He passed the first chamber door through sheer cowardice. The second he entered quickly, thinking of something else lest his courage should fail him, and closed the door softly behind him. The light from the hall shone into the room through the transom. The apartment was furnished richly enough to justify his expectations. He went at once to the dressing case. A number of rings and small trinkets lay in a silver tray. These he put hastily in his pocket. He opened the upper drawer and found, as he expected, several leather cases. In the first he opened a lady's watch. In the second a pair of old-fashioned bracelets. He seemed to dimly remember having seen bracelets like them before somewhere. The third case was heavier, the spring much worn, and it opened easily. It held a cup of some kind. He held it up to the light, and then his strained nerves gave way, and he uttered a sharp exclamation. It was the silver mug he used to drink from when he was but a little boy. The door opened, and a woman stood in the doorway facing him. She was a tall woman, with white hair in evening dress, the light from the hall streamed in upon him, but she was not afraid. She stood looking at him a moment, then threw out her hand and went quickly toward him. Willie? Willie? Is it you? He struggled to loose his arms from her to keep her lips from his cheek. Mother, you must not. You do not understand. Oh, my God, this is worst of all. Hunger. Weakness cold shame. All came back to him and shook his self-control completely. Physically, he was too weak to stand a shock like this. Why could it not have been an ordinary discovery? Arrest, the station house, the police, all the rest of it, 
anything but this. A hard, dry sob broke from him. Again he strove to disengage himself. Who is it says I shall not kiss my son? Oh, my boy, we have waited so long for this. You have been so long in coming. Even I almost gave you up. Her lips upon his cheek burnt him like fire. He put his hand to his throat and spoke thickly, incoherently. You do not understand. I did not know you were here. I came here to rob, to steal. It's the first time, I swear it, but I'm a common thief. My pockets are full of your jewels even now. Can't you hear me? I'm a common thief. Hush, my boy. Those are ugly words. How could you rob your own house? How could you take what is your own? They're all yours, my son, as wholly yours as my great love for you. You can't doubt that. William, you can't, do you? That soft voice, the warmth and fragrance of her person stole through his chill, empty veins like a gentle stimulant. He felt as though all his strength were leaving him, and even consciousness. He held fast to her, bowed his head on her strong shoulder, and groaned aloud, O mother, life is hard, hard. She said nothing but held him closer. And oh, the strength of those arms that held him. Oh, the assurance of safety in that warm bosom that rose and fell under his cheek. For a moment they stood so silently. Then they heard a heavy step upon the stair. She led him to a chair and went out and closed the door. At the top of the staircase she met a tall, broad-shouldered man with iron-gray hair and a face alert and stern. Her eyes were shining, her cheeks on fire, her whole face was one expression of intense determination. James, it is William in there. Come home, he has. You must keep him at any cost. If he goes this time, I go with him. Oh, James, be easy with him. He has suffered so. She broke from a command to an entreaty and laid her hand on his shoulder. He looked questioningly at her a moment, then went in the room and quietly shut the door. She stood leaning against the wall, clasping her temples with her hands and listening to the low, indistinct sound of the voices within, her own lips moving silently. She waited a long time, scarcely breathing. At last the door opened, and her husband came out. He stopped to say in a shaken voice, You go to him now. He will stay. I will go to my room. I will see him again in the morning. She put her arm around his neck. Oh, James, I thank you. I thank you. This is the night he came so long ago, you remember? I gave him to you then, and now you give him back to me. Don't, Helen. He is my son. I have never forgotten that. I failed with him. I don't like to fail. It cuts my pride. Take him. Let's make a man of him. He passed on down the hall. She flew into the room where the young man sat with his head bowed upon his knee. She dropped upon her knees beside him. Ah, 
It was so good to him to feel those arms again. He is so glad, Willie, so glad he may not show it, but he is as happy as I. He never was demonstrative with either of us, you know. Oh, my God, he was good enough, groaned the man. I told him everything, and he was good enough. I don't see how either of you can look at me, speak to me, touch me. He shivered under her clasp again as when she had first touched him and tried weakly to throw her off, but she whispered softly, This is my right, my son. Presently, when he was calmer, she rose. Now, come with me into the library, and I will have your dinner brought there. As they went down the stairs, she remarked apologetically, I'm, I'm not going to call Ellen tonight. She has a number of guests to attend to. She's a big girl now, you know, and came out last winter. Besides, I want you all to myself tonight. When the dinner came, and it came very soon, he fell upon it savagely. As he ate, she told him all that had transpired during the years of his absence and how his father's business had brought them there. I, I was glad when we came. I thought you might drift west. I seemed a good deal nearer to you here. There was gentle, unobtrusive sadness in her tone that was too soft for a reproach. Have you everything you want? It's a comfort to see you eat. He smiled grimly. It is certainly a comfort to me. I have not indulged in this frivolous habit for some thirty-five hours. She caught his hand and pressed it sharply, uttering a quick remonstrance. Don't say that. I know, but I can't hear you say it. It's too terrible. My boy, food has choked me many a time when I thought of the possibility of that. Now take the old lounging chair by the fire, and if you're too tired to talk, we'll just sit and rest together. He sat and looked up at her questioningly. I wonder, mother... If you know how much you pardon. Oh, my poor boy. Much or little, what does it matter? Have you wandered so far and paid such a bitter price for knowledge and not yet learned that love has nothing to do with pardon or forgiveness? That it only loves and loves and loves. They have not taught you well the women of your world. She leaned over and kissed him as no woman had kissed him since he left her. He drew a long sigh of rich content. The old life with its bitterness and useless antagonism and flimsy sophistries, its brief delights that were always tinged with fear and distrust and unfaith, that whole miserable, futile, swindled world seemed immeasurably distant and far away, like a dream. That's over and done. And as the chimes rang joyfully outside and sleep pressed heavily upon his eyelids, he wondered dimly if the author of this sad little riddle of ours were not able to solve it after all, and if the potter would not finally mete out his all-comprehensive justice such as none but he could have to his things of clay which are made in his own patterns, weak or strong, for his own ends. And if some day we will not awaken and find that all evil is a dream, 
a mental distortion that will pass when the dawn shall break. Over these past few days, we listened and read together to A Burglar's Christmas. If you'd like to find the previous editions and previous installments of this broadcast, you can find it in podcast form. Just search for Bible Tract Echoes. But I have a more serious question this morning, this afternoon, tonight. Are you a prodigal that needs to come home? Make this Christmas the best Christmas ever. Come home. Have a great day for His glory. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Bible Tract Echoes, a ministry of Bible Tracks Incorporated. If you would like to receive a free sample packet of all of our tracks, you can contact us by calling 309-828-6888. That's 309-828-6888. Our mailing address is P.O. Box 188, Bloomington, Illinois, 61702. A faster way to contact us is to go to our website at BibleTracksInc.org. That's BibleTracksInc.org. There you will find more information about our ministry and details on how you can support Bible Tracks Incorporated. Thanks for listening, and may the Lord richly bless you as you serve Him.